Okay, let's shift gears for a minute and engage our heads. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit today from a passage of scripture. Um, so we've had we've had a chance to worship in a different way, and maybe you're feeling in a different space than we do different days when we've sung together, and that's fine with me. You know, I'm quite quite fine with that. But as we shift gears here, uh, I know that we might be kind of looking at the time, wondering kind of about the rest of our day. But what if we give our best to this time together, make that commitment to one another, and see if there's something God's Spirit wants to say to us. Father, we, uh, we know that um, part of an exchange between you and us has to do with our receptivity, our openness, uh, our attention. And so we thank you for these calls in worship to attentiveness, not just to your creation, but to you, the Creator. And so we pray that as we look in your word and as we think about who you are and how you're guiding us through these days of transition that we're all in globally, that uh, we invite you to um, show us something that we need to see today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So there's a, a guy who uh, goes by the name of Albert. Albert Lexi is his name. And he was a shoe shiner. Have any of you ever had your shoes shined out of curiosity? Two? Anybody? You've done it yourself? Yeah. You've shined your own, shone your own shoes? Is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> okay. Has anyone ever shone someone else's shoes? Yes. Really? With them on their feet? No. No? Okay. Well, it's sort of, it feels like a bit of a lost art. You see it in the, in the airport sometimes, but Albert Lexi was a shoe shiner for 30 years at, the, uh, ho- at a hospital, the Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. And um, for years and years and years, 30, his job was to take someone's shoe in his hand, put polish on it, and buff it until it shined. And he said often customers would just give him his $5, that's what he charged, and be on with their day. But, but often... That would be it. He would shine their shoes and there wouldn't be much of an exchange. Other times, customers would give him a little tip, like you get a dollar or maybe two bucks. One time, a doctor gave him a $50 bill for shining his shoes, so $45 tip, which is pretty good. Um, But generally speaking, Albert knew that he was part of a job that would one day kind of not be needed anymore. It's as if people don't care about how shiny their shoes are the way they used to. And so over time, he was kind of aware of this fact. And so it's, it, it is something unique to be part of a, a career choice that you know has a shelf life of sorts. But Albert was a unique guy, and I think a really good example of some of the things that I want to talk about today. Um, because Albert, uh, he had a pattern that he did while he was shining shoes that I think is pretty incredible. He actually left a legacy behind at the Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. You see, since the day he shined his first pair of shoes 30 years ago, he's donated more than a third of his earnings to the Children's Hospital Free Care Fund. So free care, because in the US, if you don't have benefits, then you don't always, you can't always afford care. And so this was a fund for people that couldn't afford care for sick children. And here's the other wild thing. Is this shoe shiner, every single tip that he ever got, he gave to the hospital. 
to that fund. So anytime he got that extra dollar or $2 or $45, he gave it to this fund. But he's just a shoe shine man, right? A shoe shiner. How much could he possibly give? Well, according to the hospital administration, after his 30 years, they tallied up how much those tips and those gifts came to. $200,000. Albert, the shoe shiner, gave $200,000 to this fund for kids that didn't have money for care. $200,000. is not that what professional athletes give? Not shoe shiners. And yet, that's the number. These faithful gifts over a long period of time added up to a massive amount. So over the last uh, few weeks, through the summer, we've been in this series that we called Finding Your Sea Legs. And we've joked about how people um, under 25 haven't heard the expression finding your sea legs before, as if it's an old person expression, which I still don't think is the case. But it basically means that you've learned to kind of be at sea. So you've, you've grown accustomed to being in a boat. And the picture that we started off at the beginning of the summer with was this idea that we're all on this ferry, like a BC ferry, you know, where you travel from, say, the, the island back to the mainland, that we kind of collectively are on this ferry-like experience, ferrying from what has been this global pandemic of uncertainty over to something else. And the reason we used it as kind of an image was it, it came about as we were praying together as a staff about how we're thinking about the summer and thinking about the future. And we realized that the thing about a ferry is that there are folks that are on the back deck that are looking back at where they've just come from, and they're kind of focused on that. There are folks that are so focused on the future that they want to be on the front deck imagining where the ferry's going. There are those that don't care and just want to go to Triple O's and get those, those delicious french fries. And then there's people that are so afraid of ferrying that they just stay in their car or maybe they're tired and they want to take a nap. You know, and so we thought it's kind of a good picture of how our community, this one in particular, and generally speaking, the wider community, might be feeling about the transition that we're in from what has been, I guess we could call, a global pandemic to whatever's next. And so what we thought might be helpful is, as a community is to take time in different stories of transition through Scripture and ask God to show us things that he taught others that were in seasons of transition that might be applicable to what we're going through. And so I've sure enjoyed different uh, expressions of that over the summer as other people have been communicating from uh, different passages in Scripture. And I get a chance, and I signed up for a doozy, um, back uh, in June when we were planning this. And I want to open it up with us now. It's from Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, if you like following along, feel free to jump in. I'm only going to read four verses and then uh, tell you a little bit what happens after the fact. But these are the verses. The beginning of Acts chapter 2 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So these are all the disciples all the followers of Jesus, a big group of people at a festival. So uh, Pentecost was a festival. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Okay, so just this loud wind. 
They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Strange. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and, to be, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And it goes on in Acts to describe that folks from all over the place that have come to this festival, uh, the, the um, Pentecost festival, or the, the festival of the, har the harvest festival, or festival of weeks it's called, um, there's people from all over the place that have landed in Jerusalem. And Luke in Acts 2 describes that all these people are blown away because they're hearing what the apostles are saying in this group where they're all together in their own language. And so they're, they're wondering how in the world all the different languages are being heard at the same So suffice to say, something really strange and unique and wonderful is going on. There's no sense of people feeling like this is awful, but more feeling um, awestruck by something new that has just landed in their midst. And then Peter gets up, and he starts to, to deliver this address to the crowd, and he does it with a lot of gusto, with a lot of chutzpah. He's kind of empowered somehow in the way that he's talking. And he starts to describe what's prophesied in the Old Testament, the book of Joel, that there would be a time where God's spirit would start to come in a way that's different than it had in the past. Not that God's spirit wasn't already around, but that God's spirit would be made available to all people everywhere. And so there's this wonderful new experience that the people at Pentecost are experiencing. And when you think about it, you, you say, well, what's the significance of this strong wind and this, this tongue of fire thing? Well, <clears throat> many people relate that back to when Moses first was up on the mountain receiving the law, that there was smoke and fire and that there was a wind, and it was basically a symbol that there was a divine encounter. And so what's, what's cool about a wind is that you can hear it, so there's something auditory happening, and what's cool about the fire is that you can see it. And so there's something visual and auditory happening that's communicating that God is present in people's midst. And then, as far as them speaking in other tongues and speaking in other languages, there's lots to be said about that. But that's not where I want to spend our time because we're talking about transition here today. And so I want to, I want to ask a different question. Why... Of all 365 days out of the year, would God decide, or what would the significance be of the Feast of Pentecost being the time that God's Spirit would all of a sudden become extra real and personal for His people? Why? And honestly, I'd never thought about that question before. Like, why Pentecost? Because remember, Pentecost already existed before this. It's not like Pentecost started on uh, uh, the day that Acts 2 happened. Pentecost is, uh, is a, a Jewish feast. It, it's representative of 49 days after Passover. So Passover happens, and that Passover was the beginning of harvest. And so barley was harvested first. And so at Passover, people would bring the first fruits of their barley... And that would begin a 49-day countdown to Pentecost. So penta, meaning 50, is 50 days after 
Passover. And so there's this, there's this yearly tradition, there's this yearly feast of this festival of the harvest, or they call it the festival of weeks, because it's a week of weeks. Seven, seven day periods makes 49 days, and the 50th day, they come together to celebrate the second part of harvest, which is when they offer grain offerings to say, God, you've seen us through the barley harvest, now we're here in the wheat harvest. And so they would bring two loaves of bread to offer to God to say, here in celebration of who you are and what you've begun in our harvest, we bring you these two loaves. <laughs> and so we see that it's, it's a significant time. It's one of those things that, that folks would have grown up doing, remembering like, oh, it's an agricultural festival. And it's a day where the law says that anybody um, that's, that's in servitude, that's a slave or any, no one's allowed to work on Pentecost. And so it's a unique day where the whole community isn't working and where the whole community is focused on the fact that yet again, harvest is happening. That the thing that goes so easily unnoticed, stuff being grown for us to eat, how many of us really notice that? I mean, the farmers among us probably do. But something that goes so, so unnoticed in the, in the Jewish calendar, there's this festival to say, stop, take notice that yet again, God is providing for you through this harvest. And so they'd stop, take notice, bake bread, and they would bring it as an offering, as a reminder of who God is. And so some of the things that are, I'm scratching my head about, trying to figure out why in the world God's spirit is made extra real on a harvest festival day where nobody's working and everybody's hanging out. A couple of things that I'm learning about that period of time is it's a period of waiting. So 49 days of waiting. So not only were they waiting through the harvest, waiting for this Pentecost day where they could celebrate the second part of their harvest, um, but the disciples and the followers of Jesus were also waiting uh, it's also a time of preparation and hard work. It's also a time where folks are drawn, their attention is drawn to the fact that none of what's happening could happen without God and what he does through his creation being the source of provision. And so you add these things up and you start to say, okay, so this archetype that they've been using or experiencing in a festival over all their lives is suddenly... The, the sort of foundation that God wants to give these people as a backdrop for a new way of experiencing the closeness of his spirit. And so we could look at it this way, I think. Passover is the time where Jesus goes to the cross, dies, is resurrected and given new life. That's the barley harvest equivalent. And then 49 days later, on the 50th day at Pentecost, it's the first fruits of the spiritual harvest. It's the first fruits. You remember what first fruits are? Have you heard that expression before? First fruits is the idea that the first grain that comes in from the harvest, that's what's given to God. Not the leftovers, but the first fruits. So first fruits represents this idea that when we set a priority, we set it, our first priority is the thing that we give to first. 
And so the, the festival sort of took this prioritization idea and said that they're going to train the nation every year to remember that when the harvest comes in, the credit goes to where the credit is due, and that's to God. And so the first fruits of the harvest always go to the provider of the harvest. Which begs the question, doesn't it? Are we people who are first fruit, first fruit kind of generosity folks? Or are we people who are leftover kind of generosity folks? I was asking myself, when I take stuff to Value Village, is that generous? It's certainly not the first fruits. Not taking my favorite shirts. Taking the leftovers. I heard this, uh, this other story that um, I just loved. A guy talks about a friend that he was working with at the docks. And um, they would work with various trucking companies and they would slog it out on the docks loading up these trucks. And it was a really tough, sort of thankless job. And he met this guy he described as a fine Christian man named Rufus Kidd. And Rufus had just completed like a degree in transportation. And he wanted a career beyond just slugging it out at the docks. And so he, uh, he, was, he was shopping around for a new gig. And since the company was starting to open up to minorities and Rufus being an African-American, um, he, he decided he was going to throw his, his hat in the ring for an interview for a different position. And so he had this interview and it went really well, apparently. And I guess the company offered him a job in sales, which really fit his degree and it would pay him really well, and it would offer him sort of unlimited opportunity to rise in the ranks of his uh, company. And the man writing the story says, I was excited for him until he said that he decided he wasn't going to take the job. It was everything he wanted. It would, have, uh, it would have bolstered his family. It would have given him way more cash to work with and unlimited opportunity. You want to know his reason? He said that he had this ministry with singles at his church. And he said that if he took the job, he'd have to quit it just because of the schedule. And he said, I'm just going to wait for a job to come along that would allow me to continue to teach my class. How backwards is that? Does that sound familiar to you? That's first fruit generosity. That's first fruit sort of giving ourselves to our number one priority first. That's what Pentecost trained the Jewish folks in and what Pentecost 2.0, when God's Spirit landed, trains us in. That God's Spirit isn't just concerned with how things begin or little bits of us, but is concerned with seeing us all the way through our very best seasons of life. And so God's spirit represents this gift from God. God's first fruits or best gifts back to us. He says, I'm giving you the first fruits of my spirit and you will be the harvest of my church. And so people describe Acts 2 as the church's birthday. It's a time where all of a sudden the second harvest, not the barley harvest, but the wheat harvest, not the Jesus and his Passover moment, but the church and its Pentecost moment becomes this time in our spiritual story where we're invited to play. Mm -hmm. 
where we're invited to be part of the kingdom being ushered into our world. And so I think Pentecost lends to teach us how to be people that can operate under the power of God's Spirit. Maybe you feel like, well, people talk about this whole being filled with the Spirit thing, and I, I've just, I've tried, I've tried to like read books about it, or I've tried to like sit in the right way where God's Spirit hits me, and it just never works, or I've never heard anything when I try to pray, and I hear things like that quite often, where people are like, none of that makes any sense to me, I want it to, I, I'm trying really hard, I, I want it really bad, I just don't have the secret sauce to feel the Spirit. And I don't know what's wrong with me. I've done everything I can think of. And, and sometimes I think it's misunderstood what we're talking about here. Um, one of the ways I like to describe hearing God's voice or sensing God's spirit is not an audible thing, but an interruption in my instincts and my thoughts. Have you ever had that? Where you're, you're kind of going about your business, minding your... Business, <laughs> going about your day, doing what comes natural, and then there's this interruption that is annoyingly right and good, you know, where you're like, oh, I probably should do that. I think that often is how God's Spirit starts to dis establish relationship with us, starts to identify things in our lives it's th where, we, where we're a little askew or a little off in our priorities and starts to shift us. I want to read this kind of as a, a prelude to communion, which we're going to end with today, and then we'll be done. So if you're getting antsy, we're almost there. Um, this is Brian McLaren gave a, a, a devo little devotional about God's spirit. And I think it's, it's sort of helpful for those of us that say, well, I got, how do I know if God's spirit is active how do I know if I'm part of this Pentecost kind of moment where now I'm inviting God's Spirit to start to move through, through me, etc.? And he says it this way. The Spirit of God leads us downward to the bottom, to the place of humility, to the position and the posture of service. That's where the Spirit, like water, flows. If you listen to the Spirit, here's what will happen to you. You'll be at a party. You'll notice on one side of the room all the beautiful people laughing and having fun together. In a far corner, you'll notice there's a person who's alone, feeling awkward, not knowing anybody. The Spirit will draw you to the person in need. You might become like a bridge that connects outsiders to insiders, and in that connection, both will be better off. Here's what will happen to you if you listen to the Spirit. You'll realize that someone's angry at you or resentful toward you or worked behind you, behind your back to do you harm. Everything in you will want to write them off or get them back or get even, but the Spirit will draw you instead toward them in humility. Here's what will happen if you listen to the Spirit. You'll see a person or a group being vilified or scapegoated Everyone's blaming them, shaming them, gossiping about them, feeling superior to them, venting their anxieties on them. But the Spirit will draw you to differ courageously and graciously 
You'll risk your reputation in defending the person or the people being scapegoated. And in that risk, both you and they will know that God's Spirit's alive. If you listen to the Spirit, here's what will happen to you. It'll be late. You'll be tired. There'll be dishes to do or clothes to pick up or trash to empty. Someone else should have done this. You'll think with anger. You'll rehearse in your mind the speech you're going to give them. And then you'll think, but I guess they're just as tired and overworked as I am, so maybe I can help. You won't do this as a manipulative ploy, but as a simple act of service. There's a prison near you, a hospital, a park, a bridge, an alley where homeless people sleep. There's a country in need or a social problem. If you notice, if you listen to the Spirit, you'll be drawn toward an opportunity to serve. At first, the thought will frighten or repel you. But when you let the Spirit guide you, it will be a source of great joy, one of the richest blessings of your life. Now, we started the talk with that Albert guy who Sean Chews gave his tips away 200 grand later and 30-year blessing to that hospital. What sort of process happens in someone to pattern a decision like that through their life? Like, what sort of moments do you have in pause to say, I want to pick these as my priorities enough to actually live them out? I'm asking myself that question. I think a lot of this festival of Pentecost question of why on that day is because it's connected to this trust and dependence on none of it working if God's not involved. And I think the, the link between the two is that when God's spirit becomes present to us, maybe in radical ways like we see in Acts 2, or maybe in simple nudges towards humility and service, the only way it makes sense is if we abandon our personal ego, our personal agenda, and allow God to move through us where he provides the energy to do those things. And he provides the identity to do those things. So you guys have probably noticed that we have bread and juice set up. No surprise what we're doing next. Um, I think it connects beautifully with the picture of God's spirit. Because often we talk about Jesus' body and blood, and we should, because that's the symbol that we're remembering. But how does God's Spirit interact with what we're doing in communion? I like to break up the word and use communion as a coming into union moment. A coming into union with God and with one another, with God's Spirit, with Jesus, with the work of Jesus. But I had a thought the other day, um, and it actually was about Terry Fox. And how, uh, you know who Terry Fox is? You better if you're Canadian, you know. feel like you get kicked out of Canada if you don't know who he is. But um, anyway, sometimes we talk about the spirit of a guy like Terry Fox, right? The spirit of a guy who with one leg um, amputated and a prosthetic could run that far in the service of uh, finding a cure for cancer. The spirit of someone like that is worth emulating, Right? Let's do the Terry Fox run. Let's run in the spirit of Terry Fox. 
And so we use that phrase to describe embodying the values of a person. And sometimes I think we think that that's what we're saying about Jesus. Let's do our lives in the spirit of Jesus. And I think that that's good to model um, what, or to imitate rather what he modeled, to move in the ways that Jesus moved. But I think there's more going on when we talk about receiving the spirit. Because unlike with Terry Fox, when we receive God's spirit, it's an empowering to do more than we're able to do ourselves. So if Terry Fox could somehow give us bigger lungs, that would be similar to what we're describing here. And so we want to do things embodying and in participation with the values and the ethics and the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of how he operated. But all through the book of Acts, after this moment, we see that people in the church receive something. They don't will themselves to do it harder or do it better, but they actually receive something from outside of what they're used to that gives them greater capacity, greater capacity to do things and greater capacity to do them from the right spirit. I think when we look to communion today, we look to the spirit of Jesus, a person who was so connected with the spirit of God that he was able to abandon himself to the evil and turmoil of the world for our sake. And we see that he's done it in a way where we're invited to receive the same empowering spirit to live out his spirit in the other meaning of the word. So we have five readers that are going to take us through a short liturgy and then communion to close. Can you guys come on up when you're ready? I know we were a little long today. Thanks for your patience. Tried our worship thing and it kind of took longer than we imagined, but hopefully it's been meaningful in some way to you. Your first, Dennis? I forget. Oh, Pat's first. Thanks. You're invited to those of you who have the courage to ask the burning questions, to those who are ready to do something with God's answers, this invitation is for you. These are holy things we are about to do, and a holy God we are about to come face to face with. In light of all of this, it is important that you accept the invitation with humility and thought. Lord, forgive us for the blindness inside, our lack of love, the lies of the devil, the lies of the world, the lies of our competing commitments, lies we listen to and believe, lies we haven't challenged with your word, with faith in you and with your presence. God hears our prayers. We pray generally for the sick, the terminally ill, and the aged, the widows and orphans, the poor and oppressed, the only lonely, discouraged, mourning and heartbroken, those trapped and enslaved by sin, 
unaware of your help for those that work at home and those that work outside the home, for our teachers and their students, for our doctors, nurses, and anyone who helps the sick, for the blue collar, white collars, and no collars, for farmers and city folks, for the old and the young, for those who are in government and those who are governed. And dear, dear Heavenly Father, we specifically pray uh, that you would hear our prayers, especially for our church community for New Heights. We'd ask that uh, you would uh, shower your, the power of your spirit upon our, our community. And we ask that you provide for our community some musicians who can uh, join with, uh, with those who faithfully lead us. And we ask that you would provide in a way of people passionate about working with our kids and with our youth. And we ask that you would provide finances to continue the service that we do at Hope Central. We ask this in your holy precious name. Amen. Thanks, guys. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had to be operating in the Spirit. How else could he wash the feet of his disciples and have a man betraying him in his midst? And you know what he did? He did it for us so we could remember, and he asks us to remember. First, he took bread, a simple symbol, a Pentecost symbol, and he held it up and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. When you eat it, eat it in remembrance of me. And then in a similar way, he took the wine and he held it up and he said, this represents the blood of the new covenant. When you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And so in the spirit, Jesus did things beyond human capacity and invites us to remember and invites us to participate. We end with this reading. And then uh, I think in that worshipful way that we walked around the park, we'll make our way to communion. And there might not be enough glasses there. You might have to fill more as we go. Uh, more bread might have to be ripped. But we'll just do that in a way that we would. We'll serve one another and we'll do that together in a minute. Here we are, Lord. We don't enter into this with self-confidence, stupid pride in ourselves, or trusting in our own goodness. We just trust in you and your mercy. If just ourselves is all we had going for us, then we couldn't even eat the crumbs from the table. Thankfully, you ha we have you with us. We ask that as we incorporate these molecules of wheat and grapes into our physical selves, that we would also incorporate your spirit, your character, your new life into the whole of ourselves. In taking communion, we ask that you would make us one with you, one with each other, and united.